Welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco and drink. I am Steve Ryder in the lion's den. Derek Fulmer has joined me today. Hallelujah. When Derek did his interview, I have that second to last question. If you could have a Holy Smoke with any three people throughout history, living or deceased, who would they be? You can't name Jesus. And Derek named our guest today. <laughs> and so I was like, Derek, I want you back on because you'll just be a great extra voice in helping to get our guest today, John Peterson, get some additional stories out of him and a little bit of extra anecdotes and extra nuances of a story that he may not necessarily tell. And so, Derek, thanks for being on. I uh, appreciate the opportunity. It's an honor to be with John and you. And, um, you know, you hit it right on the head. Um, uh, I've sp spent a lot of time with John recently, and you'll find no finer man. Oh, yeah. God. I, Anywhere. I, I remember, I don't think it was the Conclave, but it was some other event that we had out here at your place. And I sat next to John and just heard a little bit about his story. And I was like, this dude freaking rocks. I like this guy. And Kay and a bunch of other people have told me, when are you going to have John on? When are you going to have John on? When are you going to have John on? And finally, we were able to work it out. So fantastic, you guys. It's great to be here. John. Seriously. Thanks for being on, my man. So first question I ask every guest, what you smoking? Okay, I've, I smoked a lot of cigars. Yes. So I had to find an everyday cigar, and I smoked the Perdomo Fresco. If you gave me a choice, I would go Padron 80th or 40th anniversary. Yeah. Oh, they're my sweet spot cigars. But these, but these frescoes, I smoke the Maduro. I yeah. like strong cigars. Nice. And I get the Torpedo. Nice. I love these things. <laughs> Derek, what you got? I got a nub. Um, and then I've also got uh, over here, I've got a, um, the official cigar, the Lion's Den, the Undercrown. <laughs> the official one. <laughs> they've, got the, they've got that nice little lion on there. Did you notice that? Oh, yeah. yeah I, no, I totally noticed that. There you go. The official cigar of the Lion's Den. And then I also have an Undercrown, and this is a, a go-to, a, a nice, a, just a dependable stick with nice flavor. I'm, I'm also like you. I like more full-bodied cigars, and so... This one's well, and the reason why John goes for the um, everyday cigar is that he's the best hot box I've ever, ever met in my entire life. <laughs> hot box, what do you mean? Oh, that guy can go through a cigar in a matter of 10 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> They're on one, I'm on two and a half. You know? <laughs> he's legendary. <laughs> so, John, where'd you grow up? I was born in Yokohama, Japan. Oh. Yep. My parents were missionaries. And my earliest memories are of a fishing village called Tateyama. And I was the only white kid. And I had white blonde hair. And so I was kind of a novelty. And the Jap this was only six years after the war ended. Oh, wow. So Japan was still reeling from the war. Mm -hmm. Tokyo was 11% standing in 1952 when I was born. Uh, but we were south of that on a peninsula at a little village at the end where everything was about fishing. We used to choose our dinner out of the fishing nets, go home, cook it, you know. <laughs> uh, but they would always feel my hair and want to touch it, see if it was real, you know. <laughs> so parents are missionaries. Do you have any siblings? 
I don't. I am your only child. Know, they went for quality. <laughs> <laughs> That's what my dad used to say. No, in fact, it was very interesting because uh, my parents were told they couldn't have kids. Oh wow! And um, when they made the decision, my dad got a call to Japan while he was fighting the Japanese yeah. in Papua New Guinea. Yeah. And a light came out of the sky when he was on guard one night. Literally, a light just. And of course. If a light hits you in a war zone, you hit the deck. Yeah, totally. So the snipers don't get you. Yeah. Uh, happened to him three nights in a row. Nobody else saw the light. What? Nobody else saw the light. What? And so he, he was a little Baptist guy. So he knew enough to say, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. <laughs> he pulled the Samuel thing out of the, out of the scriptures. And that was it. And he said, I just knew that when the war is over, I had to go to Japan and be a missionary to these really cool people. So your dad grew up in my dad in, in was the faith? Iowa corn fed dude. Yeah, beautiful man. Those were wild years. I mean, the animosity was so strong towards Americans. Towards Americans, but really? you don't show it in Japan. You know, it's you keep face. Yeah, totally. But it was pretty strong. A lot of what was that like for them being in that kind of a culture after the war, after you know this humili in, in this honor system yeah. where you've been humiliated. Yeah. And, then and, you, and they internally despise Americans. They do. They're required to engage you and be kind and show hospitality. Under it, they, they, it was very, very difficult for them. And my parents were amazing. They learned the language. My mom was so fluent, she could read and write it and read the newspaper. And mm -hmm. that won their hearts. I mean, really? Yeah, it really did. That we would come low and get into their world without pushing anything. Uh, my dad became really well known in Japan with the Japanese community as a safe gaijin, a safe foreigner. Yeah. And uh, they were fantastic people. So did you spend all of your growing up years there in Japan? I did, 18 years. Uh, we moved from Tatiyama up to Tokyo. My parents became dorm parents for our missions dormitory for boys and girls. We had a school of about, in those days, three, 400 missionary kids. It yeah. came from all over the country. But my, my deal was unique because I lived in the dorm. My parents were the dorm parents. All the other kids could go home. I never had a home to go to. Yeah. And so it was a little odd because they felt like they couldn't let me live with them. I had to live with the kids. So for 12 years, from 6 years old to 18, I lived uh, with, that's a long story, but I was pretty conflicted about who's my family then. Really? How yeah. so? How so? Well, think about it. Yeah. You're one of a bunch, 24 kids, and you're not allowed to be living with your own parents, and you only get them when all the kids go home on vacations. And so I developed an idea that I was a number, that I was just in a crowd. I, there was nothing special about me. Uh, it got reinforced back in those early years in Tatiama as well. So I was abducted twice. Uh, I was what? Mo molested twice. Oh my God by a Shinto priest and a sailor, Japanese sailor. Uh, soon after the Shinto priest abducted me, my dad finally got me back. I started having nightmares. They sent a priest to our home to cleanse the home, which did exactly the opposite. It just really? laid the home full of demonic stuff. And my parents, being who they were, good Baptist kids, knew nothing of the spirit world, the demonic world. So they didn't know how to help me. I was, every night for four years, I would wake up screaming with dragons chasing me and all this kind of stuff. 
So the message was, you're not safe. You're kind of alone. The priest that came in, was he a Catholic priest? He was a Shinto priest. Oh, my God. So Shinto is the indigenous religion of Japan. Yeah, yeah. Came with him from the, you know, from the mainland yeah. 2,000 years ago. And um, highly demonic stuff. And so I carried that thing, got to the school where I was in the dormitory, and had an encounter with a friend and I were on a mound of glass. They, they had a glass refuse. It was so fun because all the pieces were beautiful and glittery, and we would create little mosaics out of glass. We're picking glass up one day, and a guy just showed up. I mean, we could see for a kilometer around. There was nobody. And when we looked up, there was a man standing in front of us. And he just held a pornographic picture of a man and woman copulating. And he just put it in our face and said, this is the essence of life. And then we were so shocked, we looked at each other. And I wanted to run. I was frozen. But when I turned around, the guy wasn't there. There was nobody as far as the eye could see. What? Yeah. So it's like in my early years, I was being introduced to, if you will, the unseen dark side of life. Uh, it ended up, I got so confused personally that it ended up with a manic depression. And I carried it till I was about 32 years old. And then the beautiful journey of the redemption of the Lord through those years to start winning my heart over. I became really angry. I really angry at the Missionary Society. Uh, I just felt they were phonies. I developed a real judgment in my heart, not realizing they were doing their best and they were beautiful people. And really the way that they approached Japan was pretty untenable. It was not an approach. They were importing Western cultural American Christianity or European Christianity into a culture that was profoundly supernaturalistic uh, without the understanding of the power of the Holy Spirit. So those were churny days. I got in trouble. I was a rascal. The word for rascal in Japanese is Itazura. So I, there was, I always call me Itazura Boya. You're a rascally kid. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my dad used to say to me all the time, my dad loved me. It was never a question about that. But he, would, he was a conformist. And the Lord's birthed me a little bit as a nonconformist. I, that's I, why I like you. I can't take. That's why I like you. I can't accept something because that's just the way it is, you know. Yeah. So yeah. he would say, if everyone went left, you would go right, and he didn't mean it as a compliment. <laughs> I wasn't towing the line. Yeah. Many years later, when I was coming out of my depression and understanding the Father's love and the power of the Spirit, I heard the Holy Spirit say to me one day, "If everyone was going left, you would go right," and I made you that way. Oh. It's, like, it's like it redeemed. Oh. So my dad had it right, yeah. but he had the wrong spirit of it. You know? yeah. So the, my grown-up years were really fantastic, actually. I fell in love with Japan, fell in love with the Japanese. I speak a, a modicum of Japanese, and I'm very grateful for a bicultural upbringing. You know? Yeah. So growing up in that dorm, kind of separated from your parents... I can only imagine that, at what age were, were you molested? What ages? I was five, four and five. Four and five. I was really young. Really young. A little yay. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. And were those nightmares still there when you were in the dorm? Probably until I was eight or nine years old. Okay. Yeah. 
little less frequent, but nonetheless, they would sneak back around, try to get me. And the message is, you know, you're not safe. Yeah. And nobody understands. And the underlying message of my life in those days for a number of years was you're alone. You'll always be alone. And if you disappeared, no one would notice. So the Lord had to go to work on my identity and my perception of who I was. It took a lot of years. But I'm exceedingly grateful to the redemption of God. Yeah. So what did you do once you were 18? So at 17, if I can back up a year, yeah. I had a major encounter with the Lord. It was really? my first one. Yeah, it was like I didn't get the missionary framework. I didn't get the religious context. Everything was very rules-based, you know, shape up or ship out kind of a toe-the-line thing. Been there. And I just thought, I can't, that can't be right. This Intuitively, I just knew that God was bigger than that, but I can't relate to it. So I, I was in trouble. I was getting involved deeply into pornography and running off and doing nasty stuff. And man, I went to this camp. My mom made me go to this camp called High School Born Againers. I mean, how weird is that? In Japan? Yeah, I high BA camp. And they had a really big ministry in Japan. And they're all guys from the East Coast of the United States. And I, I, would, I was not happy to be going. So my buddies and I decided we we're going to have fun. We we're just going to make the most of it. It was on the Japan coast. And your buddies, were they, oh, they, were, they were Americans? All, were they all, Japanese? They were mostly uh, Americans. And I had, so the school is mostly American, Canadian, or a Western European. Yeah. So English speaking, but, you know, people from all over. New Zealand, Aussies were there. Yeah. And we decided, eight of us, we're all in the same cabin. And we decided we're going to buy as many fireworks as we can. You know, the Chinese rockets, things, yeah. the, the, the yeah. things that just go. And we were going to stick them under the cabin, the girls' cabins. And at the opportune moment, we're going to blast the you-know-what out of those, those cabins. And the night of our, of our foray under the cabin to lay these things, we had to go to this meeting. And of all people, the shop teacher, my shop teacher at school was the speaker. And he was a great shop teacher. I had no idea that he could, you know, knew anything about anything else. And there he was pontificating about Jesus and the gospel. And you got to get your heart right with God. All this stuff I'd heard all my life never made an impact on me whatsoever. And all of a sudden, it was weird. We're sitting around the campfire. It's night. we got all these people, guys and gals sitting around. And I, I got conviction for the first time in my life. It's like, and it felt really uncomfortable. I was like, oh my gosh, this actually makes sense. Yeah. So we went back to the cabin afterwards, getting ready to do our firecracker thing. Yeah. And it was really quiet. You could tell that everyone had kind of, something had happened. Meanwhile, a storm blew in. I mean, it was one of those bone rattling simultaneous, you know, thunder and lightning storms on the Japan coast. Rain, I mean, it was torrential monsoon-type rains. And is that, that is little that, cabin that was about ready to blow away. It, it's normal in certain times of year. June, yeah. Okay. June, July, you get the, the typhoon season. Yeah. Uh, but this was radically strong. And it was so bad. And all of a sudden, when the guys started talking about what had just happened, by the end of the night, early morning, we never slept. We stayed up all night and talked. 
And we all came to the Lord together, all eight of us, dedicated our lives to Jesus, and decided to go back to the school and make a difference in the school. We started morning prayer meetings every morning of the week. We led elementary kids to the Lord. I was a junior in high school at that point. No, I just entered my senior year. Uh, We led junior hires to the Lord. We had teachers getting renewed in the spirit. It was absolutely amazing, and it captivated my imagination. Really? That if you can turn your life to Jesus fully, sacrifice, lay it all down. I had to get right with my parents. I had to get right with the missionary community. That took some years, but that was the start of it. That was the beginning of my journey of reconciliation to all those that I'd criticized and hated and bad-mouthed, really arrogant spirit. (laughs) So what did you do once you were done with high school? Mm. Now the fun begins. (laughs) So we weren't allowed to know or believe anything about the Holy Spirit. He was like a cosmic ooze, you know, kind of the thing out there that you, oh yeah, he fills you when you get saved, but that's kind of it. No gifts of the Spirit and uh, no understanding. So I find myself in California with my best friend. We both got accepted to Bible University. Okay. And which was a bastion of evangelicalism in those mm-hmm. days. And I got this roommate from Tucson, Arizona, Dan Johnson. And Dan and I got, we became dear friends. We're still friends. We're friends. So his wife now was my wife's wife-to-be's roommate. Dan was my roommate. We double dated all the time. So now later we got married in the same year, two months apart. Had our first three kids two months apart. So these are dear friends. So he comes running into my dorm room one day and he says, what are you doing in your tuxedo? I was a music major and I had to go to all these concerts and wear tuxedos. And my wife and I met in the music department. Yeah. Mindy, her name's Mindy. And uh, I had my cummerbund going and my bow tie and the whole bit. And he said, what on earth are you doing? And I said, dude, I've got to go to these concerts. It's boring as some of them are. Some are fantastic. Yeah. And he said, no, 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 we're going to church tonight. I said, what are you going to church? Well, backing up a few months, we got hungry for Jesus. And we couldn't figure out why we were so hungry. And we weren't allowed to talk about the Holy Spirit at Biola. There really? Was a, that was a no-no. It's no, no longer the case. Yeah. But in those days, this was 1970, there's no way you could talk about it. And we found out about D.L. Moody's in, encounter with the Holy Spirit and R.A. Torrey, who was one of the founders of Biola, and so we found his books in the library, and we were starting to read them. Well, they confiscated the books when they found out that we liked those books, and they were making the rounds. They confiscated their founder's books because <laughs> it was about the Holy Spirit. It was hilarious. So while we're searching all this out, we have this guy named Owen Chamberlain. I'll never forget Owen. He is a, uh, it was a Kiwi. His dad owned an island off of the New Zealand main islands, and all they had were sheep. So the guy was a shepherd. That's all he did. Well, this guy was stood out because he had such a deep spirituality, such a love for Jesus. And yeah. we had, we'd had some conversations. He walks into our room one night and has a little sheet of paper, and it's got five scriptures on it. And he says, um, you guys need to read these scriptures, and I'll come back in a week and see what the Lord shows you. And it was scriptures like... Uh, for you died and your life is hid with Christ and God. You're now seated at the right hand of the Father, far above all power and principality. 
that all authority has been given to Christ in heaven and earth. And when he was receiving the authority, he sent his spirit to empower us with, you know, the Acts 2, Acts 1, uh, verse 8, and all those common scriptures. And we went nuclear. It's like something happened with those scriptures. It went into us and we started coming alive. It was a lot of questions. So he comes back and he says, what do you think? He said, guys, it's so simple. You need the Holy Spirit. You need the power of God. You know the Bible, but you don't know the power of God. A, to transform your life, and, and two, for witness. Yeah. Fast forward. Now I'm in my cummerbund in my bow tie. And he runs in and he says, all the stuff we've been talking about, I think we're supposed to go to church tonight. Something's going to happen. They have a thing called an afterglow. I said, what on earth is an afterglow? I'm not, it was so non-Baptist, you know. So we'd been going to this church called Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. It was the mothership of the Jesus movement. Yep. So I find church, myself. Church. So when we got there, they were meeting in an old adobe kind of a building. And there were only about five or 600 people in the church. I left four years ago, there were 25, four years later, there were 25,000. So there was like a move of the Lord, and they met every night of the week. And finally, they moved to the tent, uh, sat 4,000 people in this tent, and um, the guys would be outside waiting for the service to start in the lotus position, Bibles in their laps with weed in their hands. You know, they were, they were token away while they had their Bibles in their laps. And so that was the environment that I was being introduced to. So I had the evangelical world around me that I'd come out yep. of. That was at Biola. And Biola. then we were not allowed to go to Calvary Chapel. So we had to sneak over the wall at night and get in a VW van and uh, wind ourselves down to good old Costa Mesa and hang out with these guys. So I called Mindy and I said, I'm really sorry, but I think I'm supposed to go to church tonight. She was really mad. What? You're supposed to go? It's part of your requirements. So we went, got there. And I remember Chuck was speaking about how God uses pressure to get to your heart and reveal himself and simple stuff. Um, but it was hitting me really hard because he'd been revealing my heart. I was getting hungrier and hungrier and I couldn't get it satisfied. Well, at the end he says, come on up, we're going to have an afterglow. And if you would like to receive the Holy Spirit, well, this is all new to me. So I was scared spitless. So I said to the Lord, here's the deal. If I ask for bread, you won't give me a stone. I said that. It was like a mantra. I was saying <laughs> over and over, if you ask for bread, I'm asking for bread. I'm asking for the real thing. Now, Dan, he wanted manifestations, you know. He wanted to speak in tongues. I could have cared less about speaking in tongues yeah. or prophesying or what some sizzling like bacon on the ground. I didn't need any of that kind of stuff. I just wanted my heart filled <laughs> with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And um, Chuck lines up all these young dudes. Uh, it looked like a hippie straight off the beach. And I thought, okay, this can't be happening. I mean, this is... They started laying hands on people and various things were happening. Get to Dan, nothing, nothing. He was so disappointed, you know, he wanted this epiphany and, you know, he wanted to shake and bake. They hit me, they put their hand on my head and it's like oil went from my head down to my feet. And I started laughing and I couldn't stop. And it was, for 30 minutes, they had to sit me on a chair, and I just laughed and cackled like an idiot. And the neatest thing, it was like I was getting cleaned out. Yeah. And all those memories of the demonic, and all of the molestation, and all the really? sense of being alone, and all the sense of, really? I mean, it was like being flushed out of me. Really? Yeah, so the Lord does 
does that stuff, right? He does immediate stuff. But then there's the journey out of it in terms yeah. of reshaping your identity. Yes. Changing your mind. Yes. Getting deeper in the scriptures, holding on to truth. Yeah. So those that took more years. But that was, man, that was the beginning of some amazing stuff. So I assume you probably talked with Dan that night. <laughs> what were his thoughts and what were your thoughts? What were, I mean... Do you think part of that was because he came looking for the fruit of the spirit as opposed to just, you know, God, just bring me whatever you want me to bring me? I think maybe there was a little bit of that. You yeah. know, he was looking for the gift, not the giver. Yeah. We used to use that term all the time. Yeah. The beauty of it was he, he got zapped by the Lord as well. And later on spoke in tongues, which he was still a little mad at God for not giving it right away. But those were days where, there was a lot of spirit activity yeah. in the church. Uh, the charismatic movement was on. Yeah. Started in 1960 with Dennis Bennett, an Anglican priest. And it moved its way. Of course, the four square and the assemblies had carried it from the Pentecostal movement. Yeah. But now it was revealing itself in the Jesus movement. It was really, it had different clothes on. But it was free. It was like, I saw a guy grow an eye. I mean. What? I, yeah. So I'm sitting, I'm sitting one Sunday, and this guy tapped me on the shoulder. And I said, hi, dude. And he had a patch. Yeah. And he said, you want to see my eye? He didn't have an eye. There's no eye. He wanted to take his patch off. I thought, not really. I'm not really interested. I said, why would you show me your lack of an eye? He said, because God's going to heal me. And I thought, right. Come on. There's no way, you know. So I forgot about it. I thought, what an idiot. You know, who does that? And just over-exuberant, charismatic freak. And this you know? is while you're still in college. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. 19 years old. Sneaking across the wall. Sneaking <laughs> over the wall. I'm <laughs> sitting there in the service with all these freaky guys. I love the hippies. They were so much fun. <laughs> I later became one, but that's another thing. The beauty of this kid really struck me because a week later I was back in the same area and He's sitting behind me again. He taps me on the shoulder and says, you want to see what Jesus did for me? I said, sure. No patch. Perfectly matched eyes, both of them. He had, a, he had grown in seven days. He had grown an eye. Okay. I mean, there was no grid for that. No. None. None. No, none. And the Lord kept doing these kinds of things where he would say, let me just prove myself. I'm detoxing you yes. from some of your frameworks. Yeah. You know? So what did Mindy think about all this? So Mindy was mad that I missed the, you know, the concert. And then she saw what started happening to Dan and I, and she and Taffy, her roommate, went with us the next week, and they got nailed. Really? Yeah, it was really cool. And what kind, what it, kind of... So Mindy's a little Baptist girl as well. I was just about to ask. Yeah, what what, what dad, kind of environment did she grow up? She, okay, so some people know her grandparents really well. It was Roy Rogers and Dale Evans. Really? Yeah, King of the Cowboys, Queen of the West. And Mindy was Dale's heartthrob. Dale Evans loved my wife. She had just lost... She and Roy only had one child biologically together, and they had just lost her. And Mindy was born six months later. And she just took to her. And Mindy, in the right way, honors her grandmother to this day. She sounds like her. She sings like her. Really? Oh, it's unbelievable. But her parents were music ministers and teachers and were in Baptist churches all, all her growing up years. Phenomenal musical family. 
two sisters and they all sang and did groups and you know yeah. traveled and the whole bit but for her to come into the holy spirit what? was really so, radical as well so what was that like for her growing up as the granddaughter of these two icons yeah i mean really when you think of oh. american icons I mean, I remember being a kid watching Roy Rogers yeah. and Dale Evans and yes. Gene Autry yeah. and all of those just old black and white westerns. Yeah. And Saturday morning show with Roy and Dale. Um, well, obviously impacted her immensely. Yeah. And it was a funny story, but I didn't know who they were because I grew up in Japan. I had oh, no, yeah. I had no clue who these people were. So I had guys come to me, you're dating Mindy Fox? I said, yeah. And Jimi Hendrix song, Foxy Lady, had just come out, yeah, right? Yeah, So she was my Foxy Lady. So I said, um, yeah, I don't have a clue who the guy is. So I called my mom. I said, I'm dating this girl. And she is claims to be related to some guy named Roy Rogers and lady named Dale Evans. And my mom, of course, knew exactly who they were. Yeah. She'd grown up here on the stage, a Boston girl. And uh, she said, oh, you forget so quickly. I said, what are you talking about? She said... When we lived in downtown Tokyo, you, we had a missionary barrel come in. And in the missionary barrel is a bedspread. And I put it on your bed. Do you remember the horse and the cowboy on it rearing up, you know, and he's yeah. got his gun up in the air and all yeah. this kind of stuff? She said, it said Roy Rogers, King of the West, on the bedspread. So you had Roy's bedspread over you for, you know, a couple of years. I said, oh, it's my prophetic bedspread. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the, Later got married and went to bed with this woman who was the granddaughter of Roy Rogers. Very fortuitous. I told Roy and Dale that story, and they they about lost it. They laughed their heads off. So she would drag me up to Apple Valley where they had a ranch on weekends. We'd go up there and hang out with Roy and Dale and became very close. Um, What were they like? They were at our our wedding. They were the most genuine, real people you ever meet. He was a little slow in coming to the Lord. She got led to the Lord by my father-in-law, Minnie's dad, Tom, yeah. led her to the Lord. She was on her fourth marriage, and it was a disaster. And he was raised with his grandmother in, in Uvalde, Texas. She went through so much trouble that it began to open her heart to Jesus. And Tom walked in and led her to the Lord. When she met Roy, he was kind of nominal, you know. But she was so on fire for Jesus, and she wouldn't take crap from anybody. Really? No, the industry, nobody. They were going to sing, um, My Eyes Have Seen the Glory of the God of the Lord, at a big thing in Seattle. When it gets to the thing about Christ and Jesus, the producers in New York called Seattle and said, Don't you dare put that song on. We cannot have anything about Christ and the cross and the you know triumphal yeah. Jesus. So she just looked at him and said, basically, screw you. Yeah. And off she went, and she never got invited back to that network ever again. And she said, what an honor to be rejected by these bums. She said, <laughs> she was a pistol. Years later, Benny and I uh, moved to, to Holland, lived in Amsterdam, lived yeah. in the red light district. She beat us there. She received us at the airport and walked the streets with us with our director, Floyd McClung. She was total ally. She was one of our greatest fans. It was really cool. And her parents weren't sure. Or Mindy's parents were like, what on earth? You're going to go where and be with prostitutes and drug addicts and pimps and all. But yeah. she thought, yeah, this is fantastic. This is what you should be doing. 
<laughs> Pretty cool stuff. So, college, what, at what point did you guys get married? My senior year, right as I was starting it, we got married. She had just graduated and was teaching a little Christian school. Yeah. Climbing over the wall, going to, going to Calvary Chapel. <laughs> and we got, we were called out in classes at Viola. We were told, you know, you're going to that aberrant theological church. Aberrant theology. I had to look it up, figure out what aberrant was. <laughs> it was a really fun year. So our friends got married the same year. So we got apartments over and under each other. Yeah. In Fullerton, California. Yeah. Right? And we would, we would drive off at weekends and go up in the mountains. It was just a fun first year of marriage. Yeah. And we got a call from uh, some guys... Mindy had done a mission outreach as a high school kid to a really cool ranch in, in northern New Mexico where they had 800 uh, Native American kids. And it was a horse ranch. And they invited us to come in and become the dean of, of counselors, whatever that is. And that was kind of our first entry into doing something together. That was in 1974. And our daughter, first daughter, was born during that time. Nice. Wild, wild season. So, where'd you guys go then? Well, after we got kicked out. Kicked out? Yeah, I got kicked out of four ministries in three years. So that was the first one. Um, the, the ranch, I'm milking the cow one morning and the ranch director comes and says, we understand that you've been hanging out with charismatics and because of it, you have to renounce it. Renounce it. What? The director of the mission organization came out from Flagstaff, Arizona and he had a papers with them. And he said, just need you to sign here saying that you won't fraternize with people who believe in the what? Holy Spirit. And we love you. You guys have been amazing. We love what you do. I'd Not, had a, don't, I, don't mind the fruit. Yeah, it's just, it doesn't you know. matter. No, no, no. It's all about belief systems. And so we were booted. And I'd, I'd had such a major encounter of the Lord during that year. I was... I struggled with a speech impediment. Yeah. I was not able to speak in front of people. Literally, yeah. nothing would come out. I'd break out in hives, I'd stutter. And so my speech teacher in high school thought, let's try you in drama, see how you do. I was fine. Lead, lead guy in the plays. You because know. you were acting as opposed to else. just not being your... That wasn't as, me. As yeah. opposed to being you Is that weird? giving a speech. Yeah. That is very weird. It's very weird. But I felt called to the Word. I was studying it. I was writing out sermons. Yeah. And the only ones that would listen to me were the cactus in the high desert of New Mexico. So I'd ride my horse into the desert and preach at the cactus, you know. And my wife said, this is not good. And we need a breakthrough here yeah. because you're supposed to be teaching the, yeah. the counselors yeah. every week. So she had the, you know, she had the audacity to say to me, the full gospel businessmen are having a meeting in town. You need to go down there. So I said, I don't, I don't like those guys. They're too weird. You know, it's the old chandelier mm -hmm. hanging thing. So I came late, sat in the back, had hid behind a really rotund individual so that nobody could see me. And about 300 people in the room. And lo and behold, the guy's preaching away. He was a converted Jew, phenomenal teacher. Yeah. And he was talking about Jesus in the Old Testament. Yeah. So it was hitting all my teacher buttons, you know. And he stops, looks around, he's just like sniffing. He's doing this. And I, oh, dear God, what? what <laughs> Did somebody cut one up there? <laughs> yeah, exactly. What's he smelling? And he said, um, I think there's a guy in the back hiding 
kind of hiding in the back. And I can see your red shirt. Uh, a strategic mistake. Wear a red shirt, right? <laughs> so I can see you back there. He says, you need to step out and come on up. The minute I stood up, he said, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. He said, there's been a curse on your mouth from the time you were a little child. It's broken in the name of Jesus. And he said, God's calling oh. you to the nations. You'll what? never be the same. You're going to lay your life down for the sake of the gospel. I mean, okay, I hit the deck. I couldn't get low enough. You know, I got, I made it to the front and then just kind of, laid there and vibrated for an hour at yeah. the impact of this thing. Yeah. I went back to the ranch. There wasn't a shadow of speech impediment left. Really? Oh, it was bad. I could, they had to shut me up because I was so locked up, ready to talk about the scriptures and yeah. about the word of God and Jesus. Yeah. So, Mindy said, "We got you got to learn to shut up a little bit. You get a little too verbal, dude. I said, I'm not giving up. This is so much fun, you know. <laughs> and that happened at that first gig, and then you got kicked out of kicked out two more. Mm. So at the time, I was kind of a youth leader in the Baptist church, and yeah. that didn't go well. So as soon as I got kicked out of the ranch, there was a connection between the two. The elders met me at the door." I was getting ready to teach all my high school kids. And they said, we understand that you've been fraternizing with charismatics, that the ranch just kicked you out. And I said, this is true. And they said, well, you're not allowed to teach our kids anymore. It's all over. So that was number two. Moved to California. Mindy's parents' church invited us to be the college pastors. So the first thing I said was, you know I've been kicked out, right? And they said, yeah, we know, we know you've been kicked out. I said, well, okay, as long as you know. And, and this is why. So... It went really well, and I was there for part of a year and got to Ephesians 5.17, you know, speaking to one another, psalms and spirits, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to each other, psalms and spirits, you know, that whole thing, and be filled with the Spirit and all this kind of stuff. It was just in Ephesians. It was just part of the text. So I went to the social pastor and said, this is something that I'm coming to, and I just need to know I'm not going to go charismatic on it. It's just the Scripture. We all get the Holy Spirit. He said, that's fine. I, I agree with you completely. I did my thing. A guy f ratted on me. Went to the pastor and said, John's pushing charismatic stuff. So I found myself in his office Monday morning. And he said, what have you done? I said, I don't think I did anything. He said, well, I hear you've been expounding charismatic theology. I said, I don't, I don't think so. You believe in being filled with the Spirit, don't you? Don't we all? Yeah. That's part of our birthright? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And he said, but, but that, you went way past that. I said, well, call in Associate Pastor Bill. He talked to me beforehand, and he approved. I showed him my notes and everything. So he calls him in, and the guy says, I've never talked to you, John. We've never conversed. And how could you do this to these college kids? What? So I was booted. And then a friend of mine called, one of the guys that had been at Calvary Chapel with me. He was now in San Jose with his brother. Yeah. They wanted to plan a new church. Yeah. Asked me if I'd help him plan it. Long story short. It was gangbusters. We were exploding. I mean, it was growing all over the place. Yeah. I was doing some teaching. I was doing a lot of pastoring. I what was, year is this? This is 1975, six, okay. five, okay. six. And I was painting for a trade. The Lord gave me that early on when I first got married. I'm painting. I'm preaching, you know. And um, my buddy was really an anointed teacher. And he was doing a whole series on the Holy Spirit. A bunch of hippies up in Southern 
Oregon got a hold of it, his tapes, cassette tapes, right? Remember yeah. those days? Back in the day. And uh, they invited him up. Eventually, he moved up there and started the Applegate Fellowship, which is still going today. It's just massive. Yeah. And this little valley of hippies. Yeah. So he says, you know, you need to be the associate pastor now. So about nine months into it, the other guy was his brother. So his brother comes to me after nine months and says, I've discerned that you have no measurable spiritual gifts. <laughs> I said, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Zero? Nada? Nix? Nothing? He said, nothing. I've not seen one flicker of a spiritual gift in you. Not the teaching, and nothing. He said, I think you need to go back and you need to paint houses. Okay. So I got in my car and I just unloaded on the Lord. I said, how can you do this? You know, I'm so anointed. How could you do this to me? This is the fourth one now in three years. How yeah. could you do this? this? Okay, and I said, that's it. I resigned. Don't call me. I'm not interested. I'm going to go make money. Yeah. Get home. My wife has zero sympathy for me. Zero. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just blabbing all over about this. In, Slamming in, in her this, with all this. In the self-pity, self-righteous. She takes her finger and pokes me in the chest and I fell into the chair like this one big old thing and she walked around behind me laid her hands on my head and said dear Lord please don't listen to anything he's saying <laughs> I was kind of cursing my family you know and then she has the audacity to say to me let's go to this really cool charismatic conference at Calvary Community Church I said that's the last thing I want to do I don't want to go hear a bunch of Christians doing their sloppy charismatic crap I was mad I was really mad. And I ended up going. It was a big menu in the foyer. She goes to hear this guy named Floyd McClung talk about unity in the body of Christ. Okay, that's the last thing I wanted to hear. That's so I found good. this innocuous little workshop. Yeah. I had never heard of who the speaker was, his name there. I go in, there's a sound technician, and I'm making fun of the technician. He's got white shoes, white pants, white belt. Yeah. He's an old fart and he had a fro on. He had a white fro. He looked ridiculous on that. You know. All of a sudden the technician starts preaching. It's the guy. It's the preacher. Yeah. So he does the same thing this other guy did. He's preaching on Jesus the Rock. And I'm thinking, who doesn't know Jesus the Rock? Why do we have seminars on Jesus is the Rock? It's well obvious. Stops, looks at me, and says, Oh. You were just told you had no measurable spiritual gifts. What? You were fired on the spot. You were given 21 days to get out of your office and $400 severance check. It's all true. And they said, furthermore, when you got in the car, you resigned. You had never met this guy before. Never. I never heard of the guy. And never seen this never guy. Never seen him, never heard of him, never nothing. Not and a I friend found of out a friend. Later, he's super well known in the assemblies of God's circle. He's a prophetic dude. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. And so he says, uh, furthermore, when you resigned, you need to know your resignation is denied. And in six days, a, a message from the throne room of heaven is going to come to you. I thought, how does that work? They have phones in heaven, you know? <laughs> I mean, I was really clueless. And um, sure enough, my friend that had moved to Oregon didn't know that his brother had fired me and called me and invited me to move up and work with him, which we did. So... I've had these little milestone things yeah. that kind of shaped my life. Oh my gosh. They've been pretty amazing. So we stayed there for five years. Yeah. Started with 12 people, ended up with 800 hippies. And 
wild days. And you said you became a hippie. Yeah, I kind of fit in, you know. I wore my overalls and my hair long, and I was never a hippie at heart, but I was one of the boys, you know. And my wife, had, her hair was looked like a mushroom, you know. <laughs> exploded out of the side of her head. It was really cool. So by then we had all three kids. Yeah. Two daughters and a son. Yeah. So that was about 1975 and we left in 81. Yeah. And where'd you go after that? So we got in trouble there with our... I'm detecting a little bit of a consistent theme here. Yeah. You getting in trouble. No, no, no. Listen, right? If everyone's going left, you go right. Yeah, This theme exactly. is very strong in my That's life. That's why I like you. And the beauty of it was God doesn't let up on getting to our hearts and our motivations. Even if we're culture changer type people, Yeah, um, we're nonconformists. You're not allowed to be a nonconformist in front of God. Mm. You have to conform to his way. So I was proud that I was a nonconformist. And then you get into situations where you don't have answers. So we started an eldership with friends, and they were great people. They loved them. We were dear friends. And we just fell out with each other over crazy stuff. Mm. We didn't know how to be unified and diversified at the same time. Mm. And they got jealous of my affection and turned on each other. And it began, so my elders and their wives were turning on each other because they felt like I liked one over the other. And it was childish. It was really mm. kindergarten. Mm -hmm. And it really affected the church eventually. And so I told the Lord, I'm not leaving until you call me out. I won't run away, but I wanted to. We'd lay in bed at night and cry and just feel like we're so over our heads. We don't know what to do. Mindy was feeling Meanwhile, that too. Meanwhile, we had hundreds of people coming to the Lord. We had a rule. Once you get saved, you get baptized immediately, anytime, day or night. So I was getting 2 a.m. phone calls. Got five more, got to, we'll meet you down at the boat ramp. You know, I go down. I, one night I was down there and this big, big dude, man, and I couldn't, I decided to go deeper in the water. We're in the middle of the baptism. It's pitch black. And the guys are out there playing their guitars and singing, you know, we love you with the love of the Lord. And I'm trying to wrestle this guy. And in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we go under. Feet go out on the boat ramp. He and I are heading down to the Brookings, Oregon, uh, <laughs> fighting for our lives. The Rogue River is whooshing us down. We finally got out. And all I heard when I grabbed these branches to get out of the Them water singing. was, where did they go? That's all I heard. <laughs> where did they go? <laughs> well, those are great days. I mean, people were coming to the Lord. Guys were getting delivered of demons. People were coming off their addictions, their immorality. It was really beautiful. So that's stuck in me. And, and then one day the Lord just, uh, a friend said, you and Mindy, we want you to go with Chuck Smith uh, to Israel. So they paid our way. It was so nice. And we ended up going to the good fence, which is between Lebanon and Israel. And while we were up there, I'm standing about 50 feet away from Mindy. She's with friends. I'm with a bunch of guys. And Major Haddad, this um, major in the Lebanese army, Christian army, was talking about stuff. And I, I've never heard the audible voice of God, but this was as close as it came. And said, your time is up. Go home and resign. I've got a new assignment. So I got on the bus, real quiet. Look at Mindy. She's real quiet. I said, did you hear something back there? And she said, yeah, I think I did. I think we're supposed to go home, resign, and God's got a new assignment for us. Just like that. Wow. Got home and the guys agreed. 
a friend of mine called named John Dawson from YWAM, and he said, we've got a brand new school we're starting called Leadership Training School. And Lauren Cunningham and Darlene Cunningham, who founded the mission, are starting it. Could you be there? Problem with you, he said, is that you'd have never done a discipleship training school. It's kind of a prerequisite. So I'll see if we can get you around that. So we packed up our kids, 13 boxes, and ended up in Kona, Hawaii in April of 1981 without a clue where we're, what was going to happen. So What happened? We were there three months. Okay. And... Back in our Oregon days, we used to go to a pastor's conference in California, at Mount Hermon, California. And we met a bunch of people, Jack Hayford, and just back in the day when there were moms and fathers and mothers that were really influencing our young lives. A guy named Floyd McClung came along. Mm -hmm. He'd been a missionary in Afghanistan, and he just moved to to Amsterdam, or, or to Holland. And... We'd had a conversation at the end of one of his speaking things. He said, can I talk to you? I said, fine. He takes me away from all these people that want to talk with him, takes me in the back room, and he says, "Uh, what's going on? And I told him the difficulty we were having in Oregon with our team and the pain in my spirit. I felt so impotent. And he just said, you know, God's going to use all this to heal your heart. And then at the end he says, wouldn't it be great if we could work together someday? I said, no, it wouldn't. You're a missionary. I don't do missions. I've done that thing. You did that I'm for 18 years as a dude, kid. Don't, talk, don't even use the word with me. I said, if you want to plant churches, I'm, I'm in. And he laughed and he said, well, we'll see what the Lord does. Fast forward, we're now in Kona. We're walking on the beach. The sun's going down. We just had a nice little cup of Kona coffee together. You know, we had no money. We were busted. And here comes Floyd walking down the beach in Kona. He's hard to miss. He's six foot seven, 260 yeah. pounds. And uh, he said, I remember you guys. He said, let's go to dinner. So we went to dinner, and we, by the end of the dinner, we are on our way to Amsterdam. Just like that. It was just three, uh, three months. You're, three months, you're in paradise. Yeah. Paradise. Paradise. I can't imagine any place better than know. You know, a, a tropical cool. island. <laughs> and... and we were hurting. So it was such a bomb. Really? You know, it was a, it was a salve on our souls, man. Really? And the teachings were so beautiful. And the team there just received us. In Amsterdam? A, yeah. No, no. In, in Kona, Kona. In Kona. And then getting us ready to go to Amsterdam with Floyd and Sally. It was really special. So talk about that move. I yeah, mean, so we went back to Oregon. To, you know, we just bought a house. Just built a log house in the woods on five acres. Yeah. And we had to go back and kind of... And some guy bought our house... And my realtor wouldn't tell me who it was. Well, it turns out to be my father-in-law. And he bought it for a ridiculously high price. What? Just to kind of serve us, you know. Really? Yeah. We're really, what, what did your I father-in-law was really do? I mad at him at the same time. What did your father-in-law do? Well, he was a music guy, church musician. But, you know, he was Dale Evans' daughter. So a lot of that money went. Yeah. He, he sat on a lot of that. And he, okay. had, he had extra beans to okay. throw around. And he was very generous. Really? So he bought, buys our house. We end up coming back to do a garage sale. At least, you know, get rid of all of our crap because there's no way we could take all that to Holland. So this lady comes across the street at the garage sale. We're in a friend's house and the whole yard is filled with our stuff. And this lady, neighbor, comes across the street. So what are you doing? Oh, we're moving. I was all excited, you know. We're moving to the red light district of Amsterdam. I wasn't thinking. I'm talking to a, a rural southern Oregon lady and I'm talking about this, quote, wicked place. 
And um, she didn't say anything. She went back. About five o'clock at night, we were just packing everything up. She comes strutting over like a chicken. And she says, uh, what the hell do you think you're doing? I said, well, I'm, I'm serving God. I didn't know what else to say. It didn't sound very good. And she said, you're going to leave the security of America, your pension. I thought, what pension? There's no pensions going on here. Yeah. Um, you're going to inflict these three children with this horrible culture. And she said, you're a total stone idiot. I said, well, yeah, maybe so. She walked away, and it's like, I felt the glory of the Lord. It was like, what an opportunity to be a stone idiot for Jesus. What else do I want to do anyway, you know? So we left, we got there, Dale Evans met us there. Yeah. And the team just totally received us. And it took me about two years to get over the pain of, quote, failure back in Holland. Oregon. In in Oregon, sorry, yeah. yeah. And Floyd was sitting in the car with me, and he was just letting me fumigate, just let me go. And I said, why don't you preach at me or do something or get mad or something? He said, you know, we don't need to do that. We're just going to let the Lord walk you through. And I'm in a meeting with 300 YWAMers, and he's preaching on unity in the body of Christ. It was kind of his life message. I couldn't yeah. get him away from it, you know. Yeah. And I'm hurting. So I'm in the back hiding behind a post this time. And um, he finishes his, let's minister to each other. Well, you know, that's the last thing you want when you're bummed is to get ministered to. He comes walking down all the way past everybody. I'm in a row. I've got 10 people on my left, 10 people on my right in this long row. He's huge. He comes and starts stumbling his way through the row, kneels in front of me, grabs my hands, looks me in the eyes and says, I'm going to get inside of you. Uh, broke my heart. It was like, here's somebody that doesn't care what I've done or failed. It's going to love me unconditionally. Really? Oh. And that was kind of the turning point. It was after that I began to really find a new freedom to be, slowly begin to discover who John Peterson really was in God's eyes. And that was when you were 32? So I was 30, I was 29 when I moved. Yeah. So this, I would have been about 30 at the time. Yeah. And you said... At 32 was when a big turning point in your life happened when you really started to discover who you were. Is that how, yeah, you, that, that how you said it? So 32 is when my depression started lifts. And that came out of that experience with Floyd yeah. and that season of being part of a team that was healthy. Yeah. And 12 of there us. There in Holland. Yeah. We just became, we still are, we're fast friends. We can show up anywhere in the world. It's like we've never been apart. And part of it was fundamentally I was a chauvinist. I actually didn't quite get women. Um, I didn't understand where they fit in ministry. I had a real strong women shouldn't be pastors and teachers. And, you know, I, it was bad. Yeah. I was in bad shape. I, yeah. Some of it came through the female models in my life that were very... Um, Unhealthy. General. They were like generals. They were in charge. Yeah. And they dominated the men around them. And I took offense and I had to really get healed with my mom. Mom and I had a real long-term journey to reconcile. It was really beautiful, and it really did happen. Lord surrounded me in Amsterdam with four ladies that were hyper-gifted, really? hyper-strong. Really? And became my best friends. 
<laughs> I like them more than I like the guys. And they were all married, and it was all healthy. Oh, oh, except one. And it was all healthy. And yeah. we did a lot of ministry together. We did work together. We prayed together. We sought God together. We studied the scriptures together. Our whole team did 12 yes. of us. But it was real blended. Yeah. Um, Nationality-wise as well as, you know, gender-wise. Yeah. So from 81 to 1990, yeah. um, Floyd was leading the work, and then he asked me to take it, and he went and moved to South Africa. Oh, he moved to the United States, sorry. He went to South Africa later. But I was a very reluctant leader, and the Lord used that thing to kind of build my confidence even more. Yeah. Coming into my sonship in Christ and knowing really solidify my identity came a bit later but that was all leading up to that in those days so how long were you in holland uh, we were there until 94 and we had to leave because of my son who uh, had educational issues and you're not allowed to homeschool in holland so we had done the public school my girls did really well in public school he had a much harder time uh, we did christian school that didn't work for him uh, he wanted to go to a boarding school in the black forest academy in germany we sent him there he lasted three months. We had to come. We had nowhere to go. We had to go back to the states. So, I was living the dream. We had 357 missionaries on staff. We were in 19 nations. We had just planted a church with ex-prostitutes, 40 of them, all Spanish-speaking, which has now become the, the largest Spanish-speaking church network in, in Europe, in, in Northern Europe, non-Spanish Europe. Yeah. We started a punk church. All these punks were coming to Jesus. Oh, epic. Yeah, we, we, were planting churches, we were planting churches in Siberia, five cities over a million, or seven cities over a million people. Yeah. And we had sent a band in called No Longer Music. That's the name of the band, NLM, No Longer Music. And they would go, and then we'd follow with a church plant team, and we'd keep a team in, in Siberia through, you know, the winners in the whole bit. Yeah. So we were doing all this stuff, and within three weeks, I was gone. And I found myself in Lancaster, California, in a really bad apartment complex, in a really dirty hot tub, listening to Dodger games with my son, who is totally confused of what happened. He is hurting. He, had a, he was torn away from his friends. He's in a place he's never been. He's not an American. He didn't know anything about America other than Disneyland and Grandma and Grandpa. You know, that was it. So it was like starting over again. So that began a whole new journey. <laughs> we'll get to that in a second. I want to go back to Holland. Yeah. How did that ministry and that time there shape who you are now? Like, I, I can only That's imagine really the good. stories, the people that impacted you and the transformations mm -hmm. that happened. You know, I'm all about city transformation. And one of the reasons is I saw what God could do in a wicked city like Amsterdam. I got it. It's like, oh, God loves the mud puddles. He loves, I mean, he loves mud puddle people. There's not a person there who knew anything about the Lord. And they were coming to the Lord, eventually left, right, and center. But the thing that shaped me more than anything, probably, other than this great redemption of God, it's limitless. Nothing is outside of his purview. I can do all things through Christ with me was more than a, a Bible verse. That was like, wow, that is really true. If he calls you to do it, you can do it. It was the team. It was the guys that I worked with that we learned to love each other from the heart. Yeah. Live in abject openness. I mean, if we were struggling in our thought life, struggling in our marriage, struggling in whatever. Financially, we were all under financial stress. 
we would just walk it through together. There's nothing you can say. There's nothing off limits. It was just dedication to each other, out of which I think was the fruit of all this other stuff. I'm not sure what would happen if we'd been transactional. We do this to do this, you know. No, we do this because we're called to each other. Mm-hmm. And the second ingredient in this, that learning to hear God's voice is not making any decision without agreeing together in the spirit. Mm. And that's an art form. That's an art form. And we learned it in such a powerful way that it it was starting to affect my my it affected my entire life. Mm. Yeah. So God's not required to do anything that he doesn't initiate. Good ideas don't work in the kingdom of God. So you lay it down so that you can hear from him. So yeah. those lessons were huge. Yeah. And then the third lesson was just more John Peterson redemption. I'm the worst guy he could find so that through me, he can put me not on a pedestal, but he can raise me up in order to say, if I can get that idiot, I can get anybody. <laughs> right? <laughs> first Timothy 2, is that or First Timothy 1, Paul, I'm the chief sinner. He said that. He said, so that God's unlimited patience might be made manifest to all who believe. So he wasn't there because he was the man of power. He was there because he was such an idiot. He was so need of the redemption of God that God knew that he got his heart. If he could get his heart, then he can display him. Not to go up the ladder of ministry success, but to go low to the cross to say, take me, break me, and make me everything you want me, and multiply me. So you come back to America. Yes, Lancaster, sir. California. Lancaster, California. Oh, my gosh. Why there? It was called the Armpit of California. So one of our staff guys was from there, and he had moved back. Uh, Amsterdam staff guys uh, had moved back to Lancaster, and the vineyard church there invited us to come and just kind of dry out. Uh, I went back to painting, and I was mad. I was blowing paint all over walls, yelling at God and saying, this is so unfair and... You know, he didn't realize what a cool guy I was, and here I am in a desert, for Pete's sake. Lasted about six months, and John Dawson, the guy that had called me years earlier about possibly going to Kona for the leadership school, he called me again. He said, man, I got you in my heart. I can't get rid of you. And he said, "Um, let's just hang out. So we went to the mall. Our wives shopped, and we just drank some whatever. And he said... I just feel like a new door is going to open for you real soon. Just hang tight. How's your heart? I said, I'm better, but I'm I'm starting to look forward now rather than back in pain. And I got a phone call from a guy I knew from Sacramento, California. And I ended up up there. We moved up and helped start the Sacramento Pastors Prayer Network. Did a lot of what I call redemptive discoveries. Um, some people use the term spiritual mapping. This wasn't about mapping what the devil's doing. This was, what are the roots in a city that God birthed mm. that we can reclaim Ooh. so that we have authority over the enemy? Ooh. It's pretty cool stuff. And that's a paradigm shift. It went viral. I mean, yeah. all of a sudden, all the findings that we had from the research, we were able to share it with the church family in Sacramento. And it created a whole prayer movement and unity movement in the city. It was pretty cool. Then I got a phone call from a, f- a guy that I'd met in Amsterdam who'd come through. His name was Ed Silvoso. And uh-huh. Ed had a ministry called Harvest Evangelism in those days. It's changed its name since. 
and he asked me if I would maybe work with them. And they were in San Jose, which is a three-hour drive. So I would commute. I'd go three days down and then come back and then go back again. And that was so much fun. That kind of played on all my city stuff. And I we ended up, um, I think one year we went to 50 cities in 50 weeks all over the world. So it was crazy. And I'm sitting in Pittsburgh. I'll never forget this. I'm sitting in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm with Ed. Ed's up there. Ed's one of the most winful, incredible speakers. Yeah. He can move a crowd. You know, he's one of those guys. And he's talking about reaching Pittsburgh for Jesus, you know. And I'm sitting there, and all I hear was the city, the church, the way she is, cannot reach the city the way she dreams. Ooh, say that again. So the church, the way she is now, cannot reach the city the way she wants to or she's dreaming about. So, of course, it just, that undermined everything I was doing. So here we're doing this, whatever it is we were doing, which was great fun. I mean, we had intercessors and marketplace leaders and pastors and the whole nine yards. And I'm now being told... This Essentially, plan is, this isn't going to work. This plan isn't going to work. Oh yeah. my gosh! So I said, "What?" So the next years until now, even so that that was probably about mm-hmm. uh, has been the journey into what did he mean by that? That he is needs to reform the church in order to transform the culture, uh, or rewire the culture, if I can put it that way. So the, the years subsequent, we moved from there to Kansas City. Um, Mike Bickle was throwing this idea around of a thing called an international house of prayer. Yeah. Meanwhile, he was also the pastor of Metro Fellowship. He hadn't started the IHOP yet. So long, long journey story, but he invited Floyd McClung to become the pastor of Metro Fellowship. Mm-hmm. So Floyd was now in the States. So Floyd and I were shuttling back and forth to Kansas City to talk with Mike and his guys about Floyd taking the church so that Mike could start IHOP. Mm-hmm. So I remember the night that we laid hands on Mike and launched IHOP. And Floyd accepted his pastor. And he, Mike said to me, are you part of this deal with Floyd? I said, no, I don't. Floyd and I are different people. I'm not, no, I'm not coming to Kansas City. So he sets up a lunch the next day and invites 40 pastors. He says, just tell them what you're doing in Sacramento. Tell them about redemptive roots. Tell them about the beautiful history that God's showing you that now has generated prayer. And oh, you know, Mike. Oh, it's so funny. So I get back to Sacramento from this trip in with Floyd, and I get, I get a letter from my guys in Sacramento, and they said, or I got a phone call, and they said, we just got a letter from a whole pile of pastors in Kansas City inviting you to come, and would we send you? Dear God. So they sent me. Yeah. I was an emissary from Sacramento to Kansas City. <laughs> and I did the same thing. I just went deep, went got into the archives and you know, little little rubber gloves and found this phenomenal history in the city that had been lost to the church. Didn't know like, what their own history was. Like what? Like what specifically with Kansas City? Because I I think there's something here for the listeners about where they are right now and the kinds of things that you did in Kansas City that can be applied by listeners, that that their heart is pricked. Oh, my gosh, guys. Both cities, Sacramento and Kansas City, their history is so stunning that 
California was supposed to be a slave state. And there were four guys, all pastors, three pastors and a guy that was a mining engineer. So it was 1848, it was right before the gold rush. They were all brought by the Lord to what was then called Sac City, Sacramento City. And they formed a friendship. And they sought the Lord every day. And when the gold rush hit, the ferries would come in from San Francisco and park on the American River in downtown Sacramento. And one of the, the engineer, Dr. Grove Deal, he would stand at the bottom of the gangplank and he would say, gold or God? Are you here for gold or are you here for God? And they would then take people who were interested in the Lord just up the bank to a place called the Grove. It was this oak grove. And there would be these three other guys and they had stacked three whiskey bottles and we're preaching. You know, it was kind of old school. But they were preaching from the Word. The church exploded in the city. One of them was a guy named Martin Briggs. Martin Briggs was has been given the credit for turning California from a slave state to a non-slave state. He had a black horse. He rode from Redding, California to San Diego, California. And his horse, up and down, talking about the justice and the beauty of God to not enslave people, and that was really important. If, the, if Sacramento and California wanted the blessing of the Lord, they had to turn from the slavery thing. And it never really hit California in the same way. And they were so tight, they were such leaders in the city that the paper would give them regular front page articles to talk about the state of the city. They renovated the city. Kansas City had business and church leaders that partnered together that they created over 27 ministries through the community and the church that was so attractive. It was touching the orphans. It was touching the indigents. It was touching Irish rail workers. It was touching people that came in and into the butchering factories. What, uh, in what time frame so was that, this, did that this happen in Kansas City? In the, um, starting around the 1850s yeah. through the Civil War yeah. and on, and we realized there were five redemptive roots. I won't go into them, but one of them was this partnership of church and business. And when they formed this society called the Provident Association of 27 Ministries, they ended up serving the darkest needs of the city. The city government got a mayor in in 1912, and he wrested away from the church and from the community all of those things took it and put it under government authority, and the church began to lose its, its impact in the city. So that's a redemptive root. That God started that. God wanted it for his people, and we want it back. So we're actually now in Kansas City setting up a city transformation center that we're working on it right now that will recuperate or recover that lost root that was in the city of a partnership between business, government, church people, and what I call culture changers. So that, we call it the table. Yeah. So Come to the table to serve the city. You mentioned five redemptive roots. Let's get into them. Oh, you said the first one's sure? that partnership. Yes, let's do it. Because I guarantee you there are people listening that they're like, ooh, I want to learn more about this. Yeah. So let's just give them just kind of a 30,000 foot overview of what they are, maybe a couple stories, one or two stories for each of them. Yeah, I've got, I put it, I have a book called Unraveled, Reform the Church, Transform the Culture, and I've listed those. They're really important because, I won't go into all of them, but they had a root in their spirit to receive the outsider. 
so nobody was exempt from the goodness of God, right? So a guy named Isaac McCoy, he goes off to the East Coast because a mandate had been passed in 1815 that all native tribes had to get across the Mississippi River. They had to be west of it. They didn't know where to go. Where are they supposed to go? These are the Algonquins and all these tribes that had nothing to do with the Sioux and the Potawatomi and all the tribes that were on the other side of the Mississippi. He goes on a personal mission, finds some other pastors, and hosts them, leads them. And they come to Kansas City. They come to the Missouri Valley right there, uh, which is now Kansas City, where the Kansas River and the Missouri River come together. A little town was started called Westport. So Isaac McCoy's son, John, was 19 years old at the time. In 1829, he drops his son off and says, look, i got to do mission work. I've got all these Indians now. And they started a little place called Mission Kansas. So Mission Kansas is in this Kansas City Metroplex. But Mission Kansas was a mission where the missionaries served the native tribes. There were over 17 different tribal peoples that came into the area, hosted by these beautiful missionaries who loved Jesus. Meanwhile, John McCoy is over just down the road on the what was later to be the Missouri side, plants Westport. Westport becomes the seedbed of Kansas City itself. Where did it begin? Receiving the outsider. They started Mission Kansas. They started a service. Blacks, whites, and Native Americans were all invited. And the meetings turned into a revival. And I've got the archival information <laughs> describing those meetings. He said, we would begin preaching and all we had to do is raise our hands and the glory of God would go into the congregation. And blacks and whites and all these are repenting and and loving each other and speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I mean, it was amazing. And I thought, we lost, we lost all that. That's a route that we've lost. So John McCoy's planning his little thing, and he says, uh, won't anybody come to my town? He platted it out, and nobody came. So finally he gave a, a plot to a church and a plot to a merchant. Well, later it began to grow. It became the terminus of the Western expansion. So the, the Santa Fe Trail, the Emigrant Trail, and the California Gold Trail all originated out of Westport from a, a young man who one day was in his little town, and a man from Switzerland came driving by in his, in his cart. That man turned out to be John Sutter, who founded the gold in Coloma, California, who started the gold rush. When the gold rush happened, so yeah. here he is receiving a man that nobody would receive. Yeah. He takes him in, and he ends up benefiting five years later when gold is found. All the expansion came through his little town. He became a very wealthy man, and they were known as the terminus for the Western expansion of the gospel as well as trade. Just amazing. So what we do is we take that information and we share it with the people of God and it's fuel for prayer to recover those things that have been lost in the soil of our cities. Wow. What are a couple other of those redemptive roots? So you got the partnership, you got the bringing in the outsider. Yeah. So you'll find vision in anywhere, right? You, you, yeah. Visionary people are everywhere. Yeah. Exceptionally concentrated in Kansas City. The beauty of it was, it wasn't just a vision for 
R.A. Long. R.A. Long. So you ever Longview, Washington? Mm-hmm. Right? Longview, Washington? It's named after him. Really? Yeah. He was a Kansas City guy. He has a whole city in Washington named after him. He, ran, he completely redid the lumber industry. Yeah. He would take care of his lumberjacks. Yeah. He would plant schools for them, churches for them. He believed in taking care of his workers. And because of it, he benefited. If you go into old Kansas City and some of the, the homes, you will find some of the most rare wood in the world. So he was a lumberman himself. He was a forest guy. He helped Roosevelt with his uh, reforestation process. Mm-hmm. It was the first of its kind. He was an environmentalist. He took care of the environment, or a conservationist, I should say. Yeah. And if you go to the homes in Kansas City, you'll see these beautiful, beautiful woodwork and banisters and all this. Okay, so this guy made a challenge. He said to the business community, if you believe that to be a good Christian means to be a good citizen, then we've got to bond to get band together and we've got to take care of this city. So he will say, this project is being done in the city. I'm giving a million dollars, but it's not coming out until someone else gives another million. So they just went around blessing the city with these projects. He was friends with a guy who was a pastor of a Christian church. And this guy, he would stand up and he would preach. He said, one of the great beauties of the gospel is nature, is the honoring of creation and beautifying a city. And so there was a movement in the United States called the City Beautiful Movement at the time. It started on the East Coast. Came to Kansas City. Really? So he's preaching to his audience and he says, you need to beautify the city to the glory of God. Well, in the crowd was a landscape architect who ended up doing all the main parks in all of the city. And the ones on the bluff overlooking the Missouri River. This guy did it based on that sermon. Another guy, he said he was a road builder. So they did a thing called the Paseo, which is this divided road in downtown Kansas City with these beautiful statues and porticos and stuff along the way. They just beautified the city. They revamped everything. They reconstituted, they tore cliffs down to re-landscape the whole city. And they all did it in the name of the Lord. And so the and business- anyone, And anyone that's ever been to Kansas City, I guarantee you there are listeners that have never been there. Yeah, Kansas City is a gorgeous town. It's, I mean, a gorgeous it's got these city. fountains, and yeah. they have just these great parks. And that came out of this. This it's that's incredible. So a law was passed: if you're going to build a, a, a take land or build a building of a certain size, you have to put a piece of art there. It can be a statue, it can be a fountain. Well, it's now known as a city of fountains. Yeah, exactly. And that came from the preaching of the guy oh my who said, beautify the city to the glory of God. So whoever was in government at the time and the business guy said, well, let's, let's put a little rule in there that you've got to beautify your space. So they did. That's incredible. That's pretty cool. There's a bunch of those. Derek, I can totally see with your heart about transformation and kingdom business, how John has impacted you. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about that. How has John transformed your mindset about what God's called you? Well, uh, that's a many ways. I think one is the spectacular, extraordinary journey that God's put him on. Uh, he hasn't talked about some things like the cave, um, <laughs> which him and I have a um, we're like-minded in that. But I think his ability that God brought to him 
that is so stunning to me is a authentic sonship. And in that, the paradigm that I grew up with in Christianity was totally, is totally melting away. His patience for all people, his ability to have peace in difficult situations. So that's an, on a personal level. And when you say authentic sonship, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so how to, so when, like in our flesh, we can deal with difficult people or difficult situations, and we don't really have the redemptive eyes or the eyes of the Lord in any impossible or difficult situation or difficult people. And, and I think in to settle your sonship in that, and that's, and, and that's trusting the Lord in such an overwhelming way that it actually changes your viewpoint on everything. And it's His viewpoint. Mm -hmm. And so you really are able to get out of your own flesh, your own stuff. And His ability to do that has been shaped <laughs> over these. Uh, you've heard the stories. Yeah. It's spectacular. And, and that's what could be said to, for all of us to listen to John's story is God has an amazing dream about all of us, but the journey is going to be up and down and difficult and sideways and all that. But in terms of that, um, to be able to get with others who are like-minded in that, and they're actually not looking at religion or the institution of church or the institution of Christianity, but really get back to the heart of God for all people. Ooh, And good. that is a love. So John um, exudes that, um, he abuses that. Uh, and so, uh, you know, to be able to be with John and to hear him has been extraordinary for me because I come from that military Sardis kind of <laughs> transactional world. And to be able to love others and then be able to hear from the Lord. When you, this is big, to hear from the Lord and you heard it. It's life changing. Not just read scripture, but to hear, which your heart gets transformed. Yeah. And then you get with other uh, like minded men and women that are the same way. We can actually see and hear and feel God. Um, his dreams for all kinds of towns and cities and communities. That's what's been pretty cool to me. And then all the things that God's brought into his life with community leaders, governmental leaders, spiritual leaders, and then bring them all together that are hearing that voice. That's when the miracle of God can take place and transform a city. You talked about the cave. What's the cave? Oh boy. So I did some interesting studies on the development of leaders over a lifetime, and Bobby Clinton was my professor at Fuller. His son Richard is in Colorado Springs and yep. has carried on the beautifully. They carry something that's very helpful for leaders, that there's stages of life, that there's different things going on in those stages that God's after. And he gets to the fifth stage, which is somewhere in a person's mid-50s, usually. Yeah. But it that season is, follows a kind of a disorientation season. Somewhere around the late 30s, early 40s, there's a disequilibrium. Uh, I, I'm working with my young church plant guys in Cassidy and other places right now. They're all hitting late 30s and early 40s. Mm -hmm. And it's like 
is this it? This is all there is? A little dissatisfaction? It's not all it was cracked up to be. The idealism of the, of the 20s is over. And they're starting to think about, I need to meet more impact than this. So I said, here's the deal, guys. God is not preparing you for more ministry. God's using ministry to prepare you for more of himself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so if ministries become your idol, if businesses become your idol, if you're an orphan and you feel unloved or you feel you got to overcompensate for your internal impotence, if you're a slave and you got to prove yourself by doing something, then you're not a son. And so God's whole journey in your life is make you to be a son. Those that walk in the Spirit, the same are sons of God. And so if you want to walk in the Spirit, you've got to be a son. If you want to be a son, you're going to walk in the Spirit. That means you're going to put away anything that makes you great. You're going to give it up. You're going to take your Isaac, the channel of blessing, and you're going to lay it down. Because all God wants to know is, do you love me more than my promises? Do you love me more than the thing you're doing? And so a lot of times what he has to do with us is put us on the shelf. We call, I call it the cave. Mm. And it's just a season when I left Kansas City, I moved to Colorado because I have grandkids here. I thought that was good enough reason. <laughs> and it totally is. Of course it is, absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I kind of question it and my wife says, don't even think about it. <laughs> This is, this is absolutely a most holy thing you can do. And it has been. It's been absolutely fun. How old are the grandkids right now? we got eight granddaughters and one grandson Aww. in a row. So he's the caboose. And how old are, what are their ages right now? They're now 11 to almost 18. Okay. So joy of our lives. But it's interesting. I got hooked up with 24-7 prayer. So help start on up. Yes. Got involved in 24-7 prayer in 2004. Was shuttling back and forth to England all the time established the ministry with my friend Pete Gregg. But when I moved to Colorado, I kept that up. That was the only thing the Lord let, let me do. A little bit with the church that I helped start back in Kansas City. But other than that, it was like all I heard was move to the mountains. So I moved to Georgetown, little old Georgetown, right? We had a prostitute mayor. It was hilarious. And the Lord said, don't call anybody. Don't take any engagements. No more conferences, no more speaking, nothing. You just stripped it. And I'm a, I'm a B personality. I'm not a driven kind mm-hmm. of a guy. So you're okay with but, that? But it, it kind of. It, it kind of pushed my button because I thought, <laughs> that's kind of, I said, I feel like a bovine on the side of a hill munching grass, a totally out to pasture, you know? Yeah, yeah. And um, Lord said, that's okay. You got me. That's all you need. Do not make anything happen. And over time, started getting a phone call. And I felt like, yeah, I need to meet with this guy. Or I'd be in a place and I'd meet somebody and the Lord said, pursue that guy. Well, it's turned into some church plants up and down the front range with these young millennial leaders that are just spectacular. Yeah. My sons and daughters of the Lord, if you will. Yeah. And then it began to increase and it's turned into, the Lord's given me permission now to come out of the cave. But it was 12 years of just nothing, being satisfied with the Lord. Satisfied with my financial state, satisfied with not being known. Not, I was very high profile, and all that got taken away. And I've never been happier. And I, I had encounters during that time where the father would just say to me, "You're my son. I'm well pleased with you. You don't need to do anything anymore. You can only do what you see the father doing. If Ooh, you'll do that, yeah. then you'll be okay." And you know, we we wobble there a little bit, but by and large. It's been an incredible journey and so restful. And like Derek says, you know, when you live at that place of 
the oasis of God, the reservoir, the artesian spring. There's nothing to, there's no goal anymore. There's nothing I have to achieve. If I might. Um, Absolutely. It's a painfully blissful stripping away. Ooh, which is something you've been going through the yes, last four few years. years. Yeah. yeah. And it's also a place of complete and total surrender. And he does. He takes the very best of you that he was actually in and then takes it away. And he, it's, he, and I, I think what, what I've seen John go through and what I've been going through, it's almost like he goes, okay, I'm going to put a white canvas out there and watch what I do. I'm going to do it. I'm going to create a masterpiece. But you got to let the canvas be completely void. No matter what you did, no matter what he did before, this is, I'm doing a new thing. Don't go back to Egypt. Don't go back to the, whatever it was, I'm doing a new thing. And you got to be, you got to be good with that. Because you can struggle and you can resist. But uh, it is, it's been, in my, my whole uh, paradigms, everything changes. Um, I can give a good example of it if you got time. Um, yeah. Back in Oregon, I was probably 24 years old, and I was sitting on a mountain preparing my sermon for Sunday. And I was listening to Jack Hayford tapes. And it was unrelated. I was just listening to them, and I, I was reading the life of Abram, how he had been called to the land of promise, which, by the way, was the sorcerer's oak tree. So he was called to the demonic vortex of the land. And the Lord said, that's the land I've called you to. He makes a covenant, and he says, and there was a famine, so he kept moving. So then he got in trouble. He gets to Egypt. He probably gets Hagar through that, the mother of Ishmael. And then he has to repent and get kicked out by the Pharaoh, and then he ends up recovenanting with God. And then his nephew was stolen by these guys, and he goes and rescues him with 318 men. And he's given everything by the kings. They want to give him everything. And he says, Moreover, far be it from me that I should receive even a latchet from your shoe, unless you can say I've made Abraham rich. So, the Lord said, are you prepared to take nothing from people and never, ever ask for finances in order to let me do the, be the provider for you and to lead you where I want you to go? Mm-hmm. I said, by the grace of God, I'm committed to that. I don't know if I'll do it very well. Fast forward, the Lord started showing me how the economics of the church was offending him. How so? Because we pastor types were targeting business types for their money for our buildings and our projects. But very little attention was given to the dream that was in the heart of the business leader. I agree. Yeah. And so what I began saying to pastors and leaders, church leaders, was get the bullseye off of your business guys they're not there for you. You're there for them to equip them to, for the work of their ministry. So what That's would that good. look like? Ooh, yeah. So you've got to be free of seeing them as a sourcing for your stuff. So that was part of my cave. The Lord had to detox me from, and I can say, I love business leaders. The Lord has called me to them. Mm-hmm. And political leaders. My best friend is the governor of Tennessee, Bill Lee. He's yeah. now the governor. That's another long story. Started in 1991. Anyway, but you got to be detoxed from power and detoxed from money yeah. 
so that you can navigate with a free heart with people that have these gifts and callings and be committed to resource their dreams, equip them to make them great. <laughs> What's driving you right now? What's your vision for this stage of your life? So I'm an old fart now, right? I'm 69. My wife turns 70 in two weeks. So we're, you know, we're at the twilight years or whatever. And I, I can say um, I, I do have tangible vision, but my, honestly, my vision is that the family of God would look like what Jesus intended it to be. That we would be so reformed that we can transform. Uh, so it's not tangible in the sense of, I want this you know, building in this nation, and none of that. That comes, that's all part of it. But my vision is that the dream of Jesus would be fulfilled, that we would be one that the world might know. It flows through me, through City Transformation. So my partner Ken and I, and our little humble little thing called City Force, we're committed to equipping the church. I do a lot of consulting right now in churches where we're doing a lot of what, uh, you gotta deconstruct in order to reconstruct, in order to transform. So we're walking churches through that process of going from a pyramidical organizational structure base to a family where leaders are under, not over, where there's not a clergy laity split, there's not a sacred secular split. Everything we do is holy before God, you know, that kind of stuff. So my vision is for that, but really at the end of the day, it's, I just want Jesus' name to be great. <laughs> John Peterson. Thanks for being on the Holy Smokes podcast. Derek Fulmer, I love you, my man. And thanks for giving your insights. Love it. Let's get to rapid fire questions. <laughs> hey, everyone. Before we get to the rapid fire segment, I wanted to reshare a note that Kay and I got from an 80-year-old listener that lives in Southeast Kansas and still works in his small town family business. He told us, I really lack male friendships because so many of my friends have passed the last few years, so I would value a group of men to spend time with. I'm learning some valuable lessons through the podcast and wish I was 30 rather than 80. I plan to stay tuned for more interviews. May God bless you and your group in 2020. He also talked about how we wrestle with the concept of men and women partaking in fine tobacco and drink because of the church and denomination he grew up in, but the podcast is changing that. When I showed this to Kay at his house recently, we both started tearing up. This is my why for doing this show. So if that moved you, would you consider partnering with us? Kay and I want to develop the website to better facilitate groups. We want to travel and get your stories for the podcast. We want to get back to doing two episodes a week, but we need your help. There are two simple ways you can help us out. Become a regular supporter at patreon.com slash holysmokes. That's patreon.com for as little as $5 a month. You can get early access to episodes, ad-free versions of the podcast, free swag like a Holy Smokes t-shirt, and more. That's patreon.com slash Holy Smokes. You can also make a one-time tax-deductible donation at paypal.me slash Holy Smokes Club, and both of those links are in the show notes. Thanks. Rapid fire. Fire. How's that stick treating you? 
I've had to relight it two or three times. <laughs> do a little too much talking. That was the longest cigar I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. I beat my record. My longevity record was broken just oh now. <laughs> We're at an hour thirty-eight into this episode, so yeah, I'm honored that I'm, that I'm here with you on your longest. You captivated cigar. me, Steve. <laughs> when did you first try cigars or pipe? My first granddaughter, Amelia. Who had just been born. I'm in the room. I had just driven in from Kansas City. My son-in-law, Matt. And where was she born? She was born here in Colorado. Here in um, Superior, okay. Colorado. In a little hospital. I'm in there. I'm ooey and eyeing on this beautiful little girl. Yeah. And my son-in-law says, I got some cigars. You want to go? I said, I don't smoke cigars. Come on, let's go outside. So we went outside the whole the hospital. We're standing out in front smoking cigars. And I this this isn't so bad. Well, we got back to Kansas City, um, and I just kind of fell into it. It just Aww. started, you know, found guy. You know how it is. Yeah. Just like Holy Smokes, you, you find the boys. Yeah. Know? And then it was all oh, hell broke loose. I mean, I was smoking everything under the sun. It was so fun. Do you do pipe at all? I have done pipe. I enjoy the, the smell, and, but it messes with my tongue. Mm-hmm. For some reason. Maybe I'm not doing it right. But I really landed on cigars. All right. Holy smokers in the Colorado Springs area. If you're with John, you got <laughs> some avid pipe smokers. They'll, they'll undoubtedly teach you. They'll, hey, hey I, I heard on the Holy Smokes podcast. Let me teach you how. So, I'd love it. I'd love it. Favorite cigar. I probably, I, I, the whole Padron line, but the upper end Padrones, the 80th anniversary. 40th anniversary, you said. The 40th anniversary, the 1926, the, all those, man, I don't know. They kind of smoke themselves. So my sons, I have two sons-in-law, and we get together at New Year's every year, uh, New Year's Day, and we spend 40 bucks on a cigar each and nice. drink whiskeys and just have a great time. <laughs> Most expensive cigar you've ever smoked? I think it was a 50-some dollar thing. Was it worth it? It wasn't. I kind of like the Padrones better. It was nice. Yeah. Best dollar-for-dollar cigar. Best dollar-for-dollar cigar. That's a really good question. I probably like the Milanos. I find those really high-end cigars for not bad price. I love those. Oliva Milanos. Where's your go-to place to get cigars? I'm in Castle Rock, so I'm a smoker friendly all the time. And I'll get these there. But when I'm going a little higher end, I get it from Cigars International. Before I go on trips, I order a couple bundles and I take them with me. <laughs> Favorite liquid pairing with your smoke? In the early years, I learned to love um, single malts. Uh, when I was going to England and Scotland all the time, I just fell in love with it. And it was a religious experience. I had, people would lay hands on me and then offer, they'd pray for me and they'd say, while I was praying for you, I felt to offer you this single malt, right? <laughs> so it became this total religious experience. And I'd never had malts. I'd had whiskeys, didn't like them all that much. I'm a big beer drinker. Yeah. So I liked the real fruity ones at first, the Macallans and, and all those. And then they started introducing me to the peaty ones. And I really got into, like, the Laphroaig yeah. and the Lagavulins and the, the Ardbegs and the Taliskers. Mm -hmm. Those are my favorite now. I just had a Laphroaig the other night, and it just took me to heaven and back. <laughs> Most interesting person you've ever met through cigars? Most interesting person I've ever met through cigars? 
Derek? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing. <laughs> no, I, I, I was in a, a cigar shop in Dallas, Texas, and I met a man there who's probably been to more countries than anyone in the world who would totally turn his back on God, believe that everything was a, just crap. And mm-hmm. um, he got within a half an inch of coming to the Lord. But without the cigar, we would never have met, and he would never have been open. Because he found, he says, what are you doing smoking a cigar? You're a religious dude. I said, what does that mean to you, that a religious dude can't have a cigar? And off we went. I love that guy. He was just a beautiful man. Best place you've ever smoked? Best place. Okay, so there's a restaurant in Kansas City called The Majestic. And it's a steakhouse jazz place. Mm. So you go into the basement and they do the jazz while you're having your steak. But you have to be invited by the concierge. You have to be invited, or the maitre d', I mean. You have to be invited to the smoking room on the third floor. So you go through the bar floor, you go the, from the jazz floor to the bar floor, and then up. It's really kind of weird. It's like you're in a bordello. I mean, it's velvet red wallpaper, you know? It's kind of ooh, low lamplight, you know? And you get into this room, and there's this one of the most exquisite bars I've ever been in. The bartender travels four months of the year around the world finding really special beverages. And then they have a small humidor, but you can bring your own cigars in there. And it is, it is the best. It is the amazing. Majestic in Kansas City. You just City. had steaks. You've heard jazz. And then you go upstairs, and you got a bartender who travels the world, and he'll look at you and say, "You're a Red Robin guy. You need to have this." And he said, "You're a religious guy, aren't you?" I said, "Well, I get, you could. I hate that word, but yeah." Mm-hmm. And he said, um, "This is brewed by the monks in wherever, you know." So I had to have a, a, a whiskey from the monks because I'm a religious guy. <laughs> Most memorable cigar experience? That one with my son-in-law. Outside the hospital? Yep. Basking in the ba- glory of becoming a grandpa. Absolutely. That was just stunning. Are you into superhero movies at all? Nope. Okay. I've seen some of them. Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Wars. Favorite food? Sushi. Japan, right? Best sushi place along the Front Range. There is a place called Domo's in downtown Denver. I want to go. And uh, it's different sushi. It's really? called Wankazushi. And it's in a little round plates. And you get the rice base with all the flavorings in the rice, different flavorings. There's probably 40 different kinds of plates. And it features different fish, octopus. On, on, so they'll have... Eight things for tuna, eight things for salmon. It's called Wankozushi, and Domo's does it, and it's the most authentic thing in Denver. Really? That's unbelievable. All right, Derek, I think John owes us <laughs> an evening up there where okay. we go up there and try that out because that sounds amazing. Dogs, cats, neither, or both? Both. Both. We can't have dogs because we travel. Yeah. Uh, one of these days we're going to get a dog. We got a cat. I'm so sorry. We do have a dog. <laughs> I was gonna say. We don't have my dog yet. <laughs> we got a little dog that's Mindy's, and yeah. we love him. His name's Wiley. But Lewis is our cat, and I do. I, I've become a cat lover. I like him. Cats are cool. They're cool. And what kind of dog person are you? I assume a big dog person. Hyperallergenic dog. I I, I need that because I get allergies. But 
I do like the poodle mixes. Okay. Or even a standard poodle. I like those. Not the frou-frou-y things. Not yeah. those. No, the big Or just ones. a good old German Shepherd would be really cool. Nickname growing up or in college? Quib. PQ. PQ. I know. I it went from Pete Moss Peterson to Pete to Pete Moss to PQ to P-Quib to Quib. Quib. So I have no idea how that got going. <laughs> you know how your friends just kind of, yeah. it morphs into something. What's one unusual fact that few people know about you? Well, that's a good question. I really don't know. What was, that they don't know about it? They yeah, don't they know don't about know me. about you. Unusual kind of fact, an I'll tell you two of them right All now. Right, let's hear them. Yeah. One is that um, he's uncontrollably addicted to uh, storms, snow, and cold. And anytime he can get lost in a snowstorm, he'll do it. <laughs> the second thing is, he loves to smoke in his car. No one's allowed in my car but me, <laughs> for obvious reasons. But I do, I smoke in my car. And I park at the park, or I drive down the road, pull when out I, a stick and go for it. When I was in Seattle with Rob Smith, okay. there were a couple times where he was like, let's have a cigar. And we just rolled down the windows, boys are in the back. Caleb, who doesn't like the smell of cigars, he'd be like, <coughs> just letting us know. <coughs> That's great. If you were stranded on a desert island. That'd be great. With only, <laughs> with only one movie, what would it be? I think, oh man, there's so many good movies. You know, there, I just watched Queen's Gambit story of this little orphan girl that became the best chess player in the world. Absolutely stunning. Yeah. It grabbed me. It's the underdog thing, you know? That's cool. Um, Favorite one to three books not titled the Holy Bible? <laughs> so I read probably five to seven books a week. Wow. And That's impressive. I'm a historical fiction freak. Yeah. So the Viking history, the Roman, you know... Roman history, um, the Persians. Uh, right now I'm in Japanese samurai history. Fiction. I love the fiction side of it. I love the story of it all. And then um, right now, two books have impacted me really deeply. And Derek knows about N.T. Wright's book on When God Became King. It's an overview of the Gospels. It's the most kingdom-centric stuff I've read in a long time. Then it's followed by the biography of Paul the Apostle. And it's a real overview of his life as well as where he was when he wrote his books and what impacted it. Um, it's deep, it's thick, you know, it's deep stuff. It's, mm -hmm. you can't read it like you read a fiction book. But it's really informed my, my belief system. It's given me language for the stuff that I kind of believed. So those two books have been really great. Paul, a biography, and When God Became King. I don't like this term, but I can't really think of anything else to name it. Do you have a life scripture? The day I was born, my mom got a scripture from the Lord and never told me until I was 29. So 29, she came to see me in Oregon the first time I preached. Mm -hmm. And as I was preaching, I said to everybody, this is my life verse, I'm in Ephesians. That you might have spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Christ, the eyes of your heart might be open that you might know the hope of his calling, uh, etc., you know. And I look at my mom, who's this stoic, really non-emotional woman, and she's crying like a baby. And she's sitting in between two huge hippie freaks. And there's my mom in her little tweed suit and her little Mickey Moto pearls in a park. 
at the Rogue River. She was so out of place. And she's crying like crazy. In the car, she said to me, I said, Mom, what on earth? What were you crying about? Yeah. And she said, well, you know, I never told you. By the day you were born, I asked the Lord for two things. I asked for your name. The Lord told me you would be Jonathan's so that you could lay your crown down to make others great. <laughs> and the Lord gave me Ephesians 1, 14, 15, 16, 17 for you. The ones I quoted in front of her the first time she heard me speak. Wow. That's cool. If you could be any animal, what would you be? Something that lives in the snow and burrows in caves. Bears and, you know. <laughs> You're laughing. I'm a little funny. It wouldn't be lost in an, a I desert would. island. It'd be last, lost in Alaska. <laughs> On an island in Alaska. Yes. Yeah, I'm going to move to Valdez. I, I check who got the deepest snowfall, annual snowfall. It's Valdez, Alaska. They're cut off for like months. They can't use snowmobiles to get around. That's my place. My wife won't go, though. What's your greatest strength and what's your greatest weakness? A pretty peaceful guy. I think peace brings peace, you know. It's real strength I have. I'm not rocked by much. Part of it's my sonship journey, but even in high school they told me, you're such a peacemaker guy. Uh, weakness, I have a difficulty accepting certain things that just repeat themselves over and over. Be it the behavior in another person or something that doesn't resolve. I'm a fixer, so I have to be very careful that I don't overfix or, or push to get someone to be fixed. Mm. I get a little impatient. So it helps me to try to see people through redemptive eyes, what God will make them rather than what they are at the moment. And if I push, it's bad. It's not good. Who's been the greatest influence in your life? Floyd McClellan. Hands down. Without hesitation? None. How so? He was my father in the spirit, and then he became my friend. We were partners. We were just creating some mischief to do together internationally. He's got a big church plant movement called All Nations, based out of South Africa. And I was doing it here in the States, and we were wanting to partner up. And I was teaching in all his schools. And He came back from the Middle East, on, got sick on a plane, and he hasn't recovered since. He's still alive. He's a vegetable laying in a bed in Cape Town, South Africa. It's heartbreaking, and no one can figure out quite what happened. It was, it was really been a, a, and I haven't been able to go see him. And he would recognize us if we went, but he can't talk. Who's the first person we, you think of when you hear the word successful? It's really funny what name popped in my head, but Jack Hayford, pastor of Van Nuys Church on the Way. He epitomizes what I think of as ministry or Christian success because the most humble guy I know, his influence is huge. He was one of the few guys in the 70s and 80s, during 60s, 70s, 80s, during that whole charismatic debacle where he was a bridge builder. He was, and I love that. I looked at him and I thought, man, I want to be like that someday. He knocked on my door in Amsterdam one day, just came off the street, flew in, knocked on the door, said, can I spend the day with you? Good Lord, I'm like 32 years old and this epic guy wants to spend a day with me. Yeah. It was really special. Did you have any interactions with him prior? Mm, at the conference I was telling you about, this pastor's conference yeah. in Mount Hermon, California, when I was, during my Oregon days, I'd go down there and get some time with him. Not yeah. much, you know. Yeah. What do you do for self-care 
to rest, to recharge. I'm pretty big on self-care. I, I take good care of myself. Uh, to rest, I read. I take my car, I'll just drive. I, I look at the Doppler to see where the storm is, and then I drive into the middle of it and park myself. I bring my sleeping bag, and I make sure I'm warm, and I got food. And I'll just sit at Bertha's Pass and just hang out with you know, the snow drifts. It's, it's my idea of a good time. My wife cannot understand it at all. She's very loving about it, though. If you were arrested with no explanation, what would your friends and family think you had done? Nothing. They would know I didn't do anything. Maybe speed. That's about it. All right, last three questions. What does Holy Smokes mean to you, and how has it contributed to your spiritual journey? Well, I love, I love, I love Holy Smokes. I mean, it's... You know, this idea of a table of the Lord where everyone's welcome. Eden was a table. Uh, the Lord's Supper is a table. The Marriage Supper of the Lamb is a table. It's where everyone's invited to come and be with the host. And the Holy Spokes has that shadow of that. You know, it's like an echo of that. It's beautiful. I mean, the different types of guys that you meet there. And I love that a lot of the wives have gotten involved. They're not all smokers, but... There's so much relational stuff now that's gone on as couples mm -hmm. because of, really because of Holy Smokes. It's been really fun. I love that part of it. And the crazy conversations you get into. Yeah, boy. Beautiful. All right. If you were to have a Holy Smoke with any three people throughout history, living or deceased, who would they be? Can't name Jesus. Winston Churchill. I want to smoke one of his Romeo and Juliet's with him. That was his go-to. I would like to be in the circle of C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. Now, they were doing pipes. Yeah. But I would, I would introduce them to cigars and smoke a pipe with them. And then we just saw a documentary on the life of Arturo Fuente. Ooh. And it was stunning. Guy smoked 20 cigars a day. And uh, he created this empire through great diversity. And I thought, I would love to sit down with that guy and have a cigar, one of his cigars, and let him talk about it, you know. Last question. Mm. If we're to meet one year from today, and I got a bottle of single malt that you absolutely love, what are we celebrating? <laughs> the church turned upside down. <laughs> God's people moving from organization to family. I'm seeing it in pockets, but we need a wholesale move of God to make us look like the family of God. And wherever that happens, it's that's whiskey time for me. <laughs> John Peterson. Yes, sir. Thank you so much for being on the Holy Smokes podcast. Steve, thank you. Derek, thank you, my friend. <laughs>